Welcome to What Christians Should Know, hosted by Dr. Elijah Sadoffel. This podcast equips you with clarity and meaningful answers about God, the Bible, and your Christian life. Now, here's Dr. Sadoffel. So I'd invite everyone just to turn to the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 1. I'll give you a second to turn, and then we'll pray, and then we'll start. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, precious Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to gather here today, and we thank you for opening the door, opening the door for the church to begin a study of your inspired word, the book of Romans. Holy Spirit, we ask you not only to open our eyes and open our hearts to receive, to listen to, and to process the truth today, but that you be with us not only Sunday mornings, but as we individually study and meditate on your book of Romans, chapter by chapter and verse by verse in the weeks, months, and possibly even the years to come. We submit ourselves, divine spirit, to your teaching, knowing that you and you alone are the only appropriate teacher of your word. Be with us, O Lord, for we need your guidance, we need your light, and we need your help. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Okay. So, today we'll begin the Sunday School series of studying the book of Romans verse by verse. Now, today we're going to introduce the series as a whole, lay down some foundational principles so we all have a clear idea of where we're going and how we're going to proceed as we march forward. So the first question that I want to address is how we're going to study, how we're going to approach studying the book of Romans. And I say that because we're not just studying Romans. We're not just reading words on paper. Our analysis of the book of Romans is actually a form of worship. Because as we read the words, as we meditate on them and internalize them, we're not just seeking to know what the words mean on paper. We're actually pushing through to ultimate realities. We're actually reading God's word, not so that we just know words or terms or fancy theological phrases, but so that we actually know Christ and therein foster a deeper knowledge and intimacy with him. For as the Apostle Peter writes in the first chapter of 1 Peter, knowledge of God is intimately related to godliness. So that's how we're going to study. What we're also going to do is we're going to be asking lots and lots and lots of questions. We're never going to just settle for reading one verse and skimming it over. We're going to take a look at the phrases, take a look at the words, look at them under a microscope, and ask ourselves, what does this really mean? How does this word that was written 2,000 years ago, how does that apply to practical everyday life here and now in the 21st century? 
So the approach we're going to use is asking millions and millions of questions. And the one thing that I would encourage you to do is when you go home and study the verses throughout the week, if a question pops into your mind about the scriptures you're reading, if a question pops into your mind about anything about life in general, write it down, and we're going to have a five minutes at the end of each session in order to answer those questions. Because I've always said, if you ever have a question or ever have a doubt about the Christian faith in general, the place in which you bring and discuss those questions is in church. That being said, this week's focus is going to be Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. It'll take you probably two or three minutes, so at some point this week, you read those verses. Okay, so, asking lots of questions. So we're going to begin by asking a really, really big question. And that question is, what is the point of everything? What's the point of being here? What's the point of reading our Bibles? What's the point of evangelism? Why are you here right now? Why are you, why are you not relaxing, having a latte, taking a walk in the park? What's the point of everything? Anyone feel free to answer. The point of everything when we take a step back and ask the ultimate question about all of reality, there is only one point of everything. What life, what evangelism, what church, what Bible study, what prayer, what raising a godly family, what it all boils down to in the end is one discrete ultimate point. The point of everything is going to be the highest, sweetest, fullest, deepest good of everything. And the point of everything, beloved, is God himself. God himself says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. He says, I am the start and the finish. So everything in reality, before any human being existed, before creation existed, there was God, who always is. And in the end, the reason why paradise is going to be paradise, the reason why heaven is going to be heaven, is not because we'll live in a golden mansion and have a jeweled city. Paradise will be paradise because we will be in direct face-to-face contact with God. What the Bible says, as a matter of fact, how Romans ends, the Apostle Paul writes, to God be the glory forever. Right. And who are we going to be glorifying? God himself. So the point of everything is the one who made everything. The point of everything is God himself. Now, that being said, let's biblically prove that. Don't just take my word for it. The place where the Bible tells us who the point of everything is, is the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans. So in chapter 5, verses 6 to 11, here's what the text says. 
This is what Paul writes. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him, through Christ. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Here's the key. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Jesus Christ is our Savior. What does he save us from? The wrath of God. That's what verse 9 says. Much more than having now been justified by Christ's blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him, through Jesus. But the point of everything isn't just avoidance of a bad outcome, right? Verse 10 says, For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, meaning there's something more than the avoidance of a bad outcome, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. That's a spiritual benefit, being saved by Christ's life. But the point of everything is still more than that. It's not just an avoidance of a bad outcome. It's not just being saved. And here now is verse 11. The Apostle Paul writes, And not only this, meaning not only avoidance of a negative, not only getting a positive, not only this, but we also exult, exult in what? In God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Exult comes from a root in Greek that means to rejoice, to boast about, or to glorify. And we exult because our hearts are so filled with joy, our hearts are so filled with delight, our hearts are so filled with praise, our glorification, our joy, our delight won't be complete unless we magnify and glorify God, unless we exult in him. There's nothing after God because there's nothing better than God. There's nothing more satisfying than God because God is the most self-satisfying thing, the most self-satisfying person there is. So I say all that to say the point of everything is God himself. John Piper says it best using these verses. He says that God in Christ paid the price... God in Christ paid the price, and Christ also became the prize. God in Christ paid the price, and then God himself becomes the prize. The reason why God wrought the entire salvation process from start to finish isn't just to save us. It's to save us so that now in eternity we'll enjoy him. The best there is the point of everything. Everyone clear on that?
Good. So the point of everything is God himself. So that gives us an excellent transition into why we're studying the book of Romans. Because what is the word that's used the most in the entire book of Romans? God. So if God's the point of everything, we're now going to read and study the book that talks about him a lot. Right? Okay. So, seen in that way, when God is the point of everything, that now changes not only how we're going to view our Bible study, but life in general. Because ultimately, everything that we do here and now in this life is going to have its ultimate focal point beyond this life. It's going to have its ultimate focal point beyond the natural existence in which we dwell, where everything terminates and ends in God himself. So, now that that's said, now that we've laid the foundation, now that we know how we're going to approach the study, now that we know what the point of everything is, now that we know Romans talks about God a lot and therefore talks about the object of the point of everything a lot, we're now going to dive in into the introduction to the book of Romans itself. Now someone tell me, where is the book of Romans in the Bible? Old Testament or New Testament? New Testament. Where in the New Testament? Early or late? Do you think that was a mistake or not? Good. And why was it not a mistake? How is Romans being the, in where it is in the New Testament, how is that relevant? How does that help us? Good. It talks about after Christ lived, died, and fulfilled his public ministry. God never makes any mistakes, right? So in the New Testament, you have the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It tells us about Christ was born, he fulfilled his public ministry, he died and, and made an atonement, he rose from the dead three days later. The Gospels gives us four different viewpoints. They're synoptic, all-seeing in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. After the four Gospels, now you have the book of Acts. What does the book of Acts talk about? Talks about Acts, what the apostles did. And what were they acting upon? They were building Christ's church. So based upon what Christ does in the Gospels, he then sends the apostles who then act and build his church. How do they build the church? They're teaching, they're preaching, they're telling the gospel, what did they preach and teach about? About God, exactly. Where we learn about God? In the book of Romans. So it's no mistake that you have the gospels, then Acts, then the book of Romans. In the book of Romans, we essentially have all the foundational truths found in the entire Bible. So if you're ever curious about what does the church preach, what does the church teach? The grand magnum opus doctrinal book in the entire Bible is the book of Romans because it tells you what God has wrought for us through salva- for our salvation through Jesus Christ from start to finish. And because Romans gives us all the foundational truths of the Bible, it's God's revelation to us. It's God revealing spiritual truth to us so that he can build up his own spiritual people and therein build his spiritual church. Christ is a cornerstone. 
the prophets and the apostles are the foundation. And if you want to use figurative language, the book of Romans gives the cement, the stuff that holds everything together that Jesus and the apostles laid on the foundation of God's spiritual house. And the one thing I'll mention before I move on is that the number one word mentioned in the book of Romans is the word God, but Romans has a direct continuity to everything that was said before. In that, when Paul writes this under divine inspiration, he wasn't preaching or teaching any new doctrine or gospel because more than any other book in the entire New Testament, Romans quotes the Old Testament the most, meaning this is a continuation and a fuller disclosure of the word God had already revealed in the Old Testament. Now, the book of Genesis tells us history. The book of Psalms gives us poetry. The Gospels are Gospels. What type of book is Romans? It's a letter. Now, what's the fancy word? Epistle. epistle. Why is Romans called an epistle? It's a letter. But why, do we, why, why don't we say it's a letter? Why do we say it's an epistle? To make ourselves sound smart, that's why. Because epistle comes from a Greek word, which that's what it sounds like, epistle. But in simple language, the book of Romans is a letter. Now, who did Paul write the letter to to those in the church in Rome. Exactly. Now, what distinguishes the epistle of Romans from a normal letter is when we talk about epistle, we usually mean a letter that's in the New Testament that's written to a particular people. It's not, you know, the club of atheists or a biker club. It's a church. It's a group of people in a particular city. And those epistles tended to be very, very personal because most epistles, like Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Letter to the Ephesians, it mentions individuals by name. So the writer of the epistle actually knew or was familiar with, in general, the people to whom he was writing. Does anyone know, in general, if Paul was writing to the church in Rome... Does that mean there was one church in Rome, or were there multiple? Multiple. Back then, 2,000 years ago, their idea of church is radically different than our idea of church now. You have a church in Richmond Hill, you have one in Chelsea, you have one in uh, Manhasset, where it's a building where people actually come to gather. But back then, churches were usually congregated in someone's house. So in verse, uh, in chapter 1, verse 7, this is what Paul writes. To the church in Rome, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called his saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now note that Paul does not write to the church of Rome. He writes to the church in Rome. So what I always like to do to make things really plain, there's a difference between the capital C church and the lowercase c church. The capital C church refers to all people everywhere, all across the world, 
who are elect, who are born again, who are regenerated, who believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. That's the capital C church. So whether anyone here flies all the way across the world is now find themselves in the, the middle of a, a jungle in sub-Saharan Africa, you are still a member of the capital C church. You now have lowercase c churches, which are local extensions of the capital C church. And the lowercase c church is where we meet. The point is this. Paul was not writing to the church of Rome because the church, Rome never had ownership of the church in one specific geographic location. The church of God are a people, not a place. So therefore, when, when Paul writes to the church in Rome, he's writing to all those individuals. Some may go to Sister Linda's house for church. Some may go to Chad's house for church. Some may go to the calendar's house for church. And that's okay. Because it's not a church of Rome, it's the church in Rome consisting of a myriad group of people. What explains the fact that there were Christians in Rome? Let me back up. That question was a little bit vague. Let me, let me try that again. 2,000 years ago, Rome in many senses made how Americans behave now, they made us look like saints. It was bad. It was pedophilia. It was public orgies. It was drunken parties. It was um, public proclamation of sodomy. It was pagan worship, anything you can think about. So the question I'm asking is this. If the Romans were that bad, what explains the fact that there were Christians in Rome? Because one would think everyone should be behaving pretty badly, right? Not necessarily, but what explains a devout church in Rome in spite of that secular environment? Amen, Brother Jeff. The power... Of God. What does Paul write? He says, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints. That's the key term. The only thing that explains having a devout Christian community in the midst of ancient Rome, the only thing that explains having a devout Christian community in the midst of modern America, the only thing that explains having a devout Christian community in the midst of a country that's probably Muslim, anywhere, anytime, any place, is the divine hand of God calling particular people who are his own. Because as I say all the time, when God calls, no one can say no. And that's the key. What separates and defines God's church, regardless of time or place, is his calling. Now that word calling is very particular and is a biblical concept worth exploring. We're going to dive into that in the, uh, the next lesson. Now, a crucial thing to understand is this. Rome back then was very similar to New York City now in that you had a myriad of people speaking different languages. They were members of different cultures. There were many, many different ethnicities. So in many ways, 
Rome was a small representation of the entire known world at the time. So we have to appreciate the fact that Paul was writing a letter to a place in which people have never had a teaching from an apostle before, and in God sending his word, in God sending an epistle, in God sending all of his foundational truths to this international coalitions of people, God was actually being brilliant. He was sending his word to a place where everybody was there congregating, and what they would now do, they would hear that word, all those who were called as saints, they would listen to that word, and then do what? Begin dispersing and going to where they were from and immersing themselves in their native cultures and spreading the word of God. But we also have to appreciate how God was working in this epistle. And it's also very important to realize, let's back up, who crucified Jesus? Well, best answer is God did, Isaiah 53, but the means he used to crucify his son was the Jews bringing charges and the Romans actually hung him on the cross, right? Who's his epistle being written to? The Romans. In other words, the bad guys. In other words, those same people who killed the Son of God. So what is God telling us by the fact that he's having his apostle write a letter to those bad guys who killed his son? That he's a God of grace, that he's a God of mercy, meaning even the church in Rome, even the church where those bad guys have their capital, God wants his truth to be proclaimed even in that city. Good. Next question. Oh, and before I move on, let me say this. The last historical lens we have to appreciate is this. If I was living in Rome and the year was 40, let's say I was a guy born to a pagan family, I worshipped Zeus or Dan or whatever, right? Me being a non-Jew, I never would have heard of Moses, never would have heard of Exodus, never would have heard of King David, and had I not had my ear to the news couriers back then, I wouldn't know anything about the God of Israel, about Yahweh, and about everything he had done. And I may not have even heard about who this guy they called Jesus Christ was. This is why when Paul writes his epistle to the Romans, he starts from the very beginning and essentially gives us a summary of everything that happened in the Bible. He explains what God was doing from Genesis through Acts in order to give an otherwise ignorant Gentile world a broad lens on who God is and what he has done. Good. Here's my next question. Paul was writing to the people called out by God, called as saints, in Rome. How did the Christians get there? How did Christians get into Rome? Because in Romans 15, verse 20, here's what Paul writes. He says, And thus I aspire to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. Translation, Paul is writing this epistle to the church in Rome because they've never been visited before or taught 
by an apostle, meaning he's the first one giving them apostolic teaching. So the question now is, if Paul, roughly speaking, in the year 56 AD, is giving the people their first introduction to the foundational truths of the scriptures, how did those people get there? We know they were called the saints. We know how they became believers spiritually. But how did they geographically get there? Because the, the hot spot at this time in the world was in and around Jerusalem, right? In and around Israel. So how'd that happen? Wasn't there persecution of the church and the saints were scattered? Good. Saints were scattered, but the Bible doesn't say they went as far as Rome. I'm going to give everybody a hint. A clue lies in Acts chapter 2. What happened in Acts 2? Oh, yes. Uh, Pentecost. Yes. And what happened at Pentecost? Everybody heard the gospel in their own language. And who was present in the audience at Pentecost? By name, the Bible mentioned people from Rome. So we can infer, using biblical evidence... That at Pentecost, roughly speaking, the year 34-35, people heard the gospel when the Holy Spirit ascended on the 120 upper room, and they therefore took their, uh, that gospel message, now being converted back to Rome, preaching and teaching what they saw and heard, and that, that's where the roots of the original church at Rome began. And then on top of that, the other piece of biblical evidence is this. In Acts 18, we read that Aquila and Priscilla, who were companions of Paul, had gone to Rome. So the Bible now gives us two plausible entry points of how the seed was sown from Judea in Rome. So the question is, is it plausible to presume that as a function of Pentecost and people of all tribes and tongues... um, saw the Holy Spirit descend. That was the route by which people all around the world knew Jesus. Yeah. Okay. It's possible in the context of what the known world at the time was then. Because remember, the known world 2,000 years ago isn't the known world now. The known world 2,000 years ago was pretty much from, on the western border, Spain, to the eastern border, Babylon. So it was very, very contained. What the Bible does say, though, is that after Acts happened, after Pentecost happened, in the book of Acts, what the Apostle Paul does is he goes on three missionary journeys. And each journey expands farther and farther outward to basically touch all of the known world. And then from there, once technology begins developing and people in, uh, who are in Europe now, quote-unquote, discovered the West where we are, they found land that God already made thousands and thousands of years ago, people with trade routes and ships and telephone communication began spreading out. Because realize, too, that even though we live in the year 2019, there are still pockets of the world that haven't heard the gospel. I don't remember the story, but there's an island somewhere in the South Indian Sea. They're apparently very hostile to Christians, and they recently killed someone a couple of months ago, which validates the point that Pentecost um, put the seed in the ground, and it began spreading roots. But still to this day, 
people haven't heard the gospel and the means by which God ordained is by preaching and teaching of the word. Time is up. We'll stop here for next week, for, for this week, pick up next week. Before we close, any questions? Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your clarity. We thank you for the opportunity to meet and just ask you once again, Holy Spirit, to carry the revelation here today and plant deep within our souls and ignite a fire, O oh Lord, in our hearts, a zeal and a passion to meditate on your word day and night so the, seed, so the seed which you will plant each and every week will flourish and grow to bear fruit 30, 60, and 100-fold. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more valuable resources, including a bookstore and online Bible study, visit wcsk.org.